Welcome. Welcome to, Welcome to Education on, on Tap. Welcome to Education on Tap, a podcast brought to you by Teach for America. Hey everyone, welcome to another edition of Education on Tap. It's me again, Aaron French, your host. A lot of different people have a lot of different opinions about education, as we have all heard over the past year on this podcast. But there's one point I'm betting almost everyone can agree on, that school should be a happy place for our kids. In her book, The End of the Rainbow, developmental psychologist Susan Engel argues that we're not exactly operating with that frame of thought these days. So are we raising a nation of shiny, happy people holding hands or a generation only focused on making money? Yes, I realized I just made an REM reference and that I dated myself, but you know, that happens sometimes. Here's my conversation with Susan. Oh, and... Don't forget, listen to the end of the show because there's some important information for you there too. Enjoy. Well, first and foremost, Susan, thanks so much for joining the show today. Totally my pleasure. And I think you would would agree that a brief overview of your book would be that we currently aren't educating our kids the right way. Um, explain Explain what you think we're doing wrong. Okay, well, I want to start actually by saying that there are lots of great things happening in various classrooms all over the country, you know, good teachers, nice classrooms, sort of pockets of goodness. But the overall emphasis of the school system in this country has bit by bit over the last century or so shifted towards this kind of univision, this idea that the be-all and end-all of a good education is making money or having money. And that has distorted the whole system and pushed people to emphasize the wrong things in classrooms, things that don't actually lead to well-being in adulthood and don't even achieve the purposes they're supposed to. And we'll actually dig right into that right now. So you are literally throwing this idea of education as an investment in the very literal sense, completely out of the window. I mean, that's what I was taught growing up, that education will get you money, which will buy you success, which will make you happy. Um, And so my question to you is, why is that kind of mindset so dangerous and detrimental to our kids? Part of the problem comes from the idea that school is to train people for a job. The point of school, the idea of school is to educate people, and that's a a very different thing. Um, Now, it's true that when people are educated, when people have access to a decent education, their lives are better in a variety of ways, including financial ways. Um, But if that becomes the, the organizing principle of school, if that becomes the goal within school, you end up getting a school system where children are being forced to do things that hold no interest for them. They're being forced to um, sort of push themselves towards rote learning and um, skills that are marketable rather than the much more enduring and powerful skills that school in the first place was supposed to achieve, or not skills, but abilities like the ability to think well, the ability to pursue things that interest you, the ability to make good decisions about your life or work with others, which are the much nobler, broader, and more powerful 
um, kinds of abilities you can get in school, uh, but they tend to get pushed to the side if you think of school as a place to train a person to get a job. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I'm starting, I talk to a lot of people for this show, and I'm starting to see a, a bigger focus on the whole child, so like critical thinking and teaching them the skills that will make them happy, but you're absolutely right. Um, there's a lot of folks that, that focus quite a lot on the rote knowledge. I think it's finding that balance, um, which it leads me to kind of the next thing that I wanted to ask you is I'm having a little bit of trouble separating this idea of, you know, education as an investment, which you kind of argue against and, you know, keeping kids in poverty. Are you saying that we shouldn't lift those kids up as with education as a way to, to lift them out of poverty? No, of course not, not at all. Um, I think that it's, you know, I, I talk about this in, in the book. There's a chapter called Rich or Poor, It's Good to Have Money. And we know absolutely that having a certain basic amount of money is necessary to achieve any other purposes. No one can be good at things, can have decent relationships, can live a good life if they're living below the poverty line, if they don't know where they're going to sleep the next night or if they don't know where their next meal is coming from. But... um and there's no question, as I said, and we see this not only within our own country, but internationally, that when you provide people with schooling, all kinds of things get better. Um, the rate of armed conflict goes down, uh, relationships are better, health care is better, people don't get sick as much. So there's no question that educating people is essential to a certain decent standard of living. But that doesn't mean that what goes on in the classroom should be oriented towards making sure that individual kid can make money or that individual state can produce more income. That's where there's a confusion. Yeah, sending people to school is one antidote to poverty, but that doesn't mean that's how we should decide what gets taught or what gets assessed or what kids should do when they're in school. That That's where there's a big confusion. So no, of course, I don't think anyone should have to be in poverty. But I'd add one more thing there, which is it's an incredible burden we've placed on our school system to insist that it's up to our educational system to solve the problem of poverty. Um, that seems crazy. It's hard enough to get every kid to want to read or work in a group or figure out what they like to do and get good at it, but to also say, and also, our schools are going to solve the national problem of poverty, that seems like a, a really crazy twist on things. I 100% agree with you on that, Susan. 100% agree. Um, Good. A, a central theme of your book uh, is that we should design schools that children want to go to. And you've kind of alluded to that a little bit already. Um, so are we talking, we, we put slides in every classroom, iPads at every desk, giving every single kid a trophy for a job well done. Break that down for me a little bit by and tell me what you mean. I, I will. And it has very little to do with what sort of prizes and treasures you put in the classroom. Um, you know, iPads, trophies, whatever. It has more to do with making school uh, a pleasant, lovely place for kids to be. And, of course, this relates to the, the earlier question about poverty. If you are growing up in difficult circumstances, whether your neighborhood is in trouble or your home is uncertain or, you know, you whatever is going wrong, 
that's even more reason to make school a really pleasant, lovely place where there are people who are kind to you, where you get to do things that are interesting, where you get to be good at things, where you get to pursue things. And one of the things that we seem to have lost total track of or sight of is that kids really love to pour themselves into activity. They love to be industrious. They love to be engaged. They like to get good at things. And if school were a place that emphasized those experiences, they would become places kids would want to be. And then this old kind of cliche about lifelong learning would be more than an empty cliche. Kids would learn that, ah, learning feels good. It feels good to be in a group of people who are working on something together um, and getting better at things. So when I say make schools a place where kids want to be, I mean in the very basic human categories of making it a place where you feel welcome, making it a place where you can do things that interest you and um, draw on your strengths, uh, making it a place where you can connect to others, and where you can learn to be like older people or grown-ups in a way that's pleasant. I mean, making schools real communities is what I'm talking about. And it might have an iPad, but it might not. I don't think that's the essential. (laughs) A tool of the trade, not necessarily the trade itself, right? Exactly. Um, Well put. And and so we'll we'll talk about here in a second some concrete ways that we can actually start that today. But before we do, I have to say, when I was reading your book, I, I thought of you as writing this and me reading it, too, in the middle of like this gorgeous field of daisies and everybody's skipping and there's like these beautiful ladybugs. It's just a happy, <laughs> happy place. And, you know, a yeah. little bit idealistic to me. Um, uh-huh. And so I what I want to hear is from you is, number one, I have to say it was refreshing to see an attitude toward education like that. Uh, But do you think that the way we focus on education right now, meaning that or or using that rote learning that we talked about earlier, do you think that has turned us into all cynics and we're not able to be happy about education right now? Um, I don't know if it's turned us into cynics, but I do think that the the trend in education has made has sort of distorted our view of what kids are like and what they're capable of. So there's this sense that if you let up the pressure at all, if you don't threaten them with test scores and prizes and punishments, um, they'll all just turn wild and and schools will descend into some state of complete bedlam. And that misses everything we've learned. You know, I'm a developmental psychologist, so we've researchers have learned a lot in the last hundred years about what kids are like. And we know that they, as I said, are naturally industrious, that they like to work with other people, that they like doing things that are interesting. In fact, kids like to be intellectually engaged. Um, and yet, if you look at a lot of what's going on in school, you get the feeling that adults think that if you if you let up at all, if you give children any sense of autonomy or choice, um, if you if you focus on you know pleasure or enjoyment, you'll somehow be turning schools into these these wild places where nothing good happens. So we're we've become somewhat cynical about sort of human characteristics or human capacities and how they develop. Um, I do think I do think that. Okay, so let's let's get to the bread and butter of your book here, and don't give it all away. But um, you know, what are some things that our teachers and our parents can do today or tomorrow 
to to quite literally make their classrooms a happier place? Okay, well, I'll start with a hint about the end of the book. We should, um, even though I'm not an assessment person per se, and I would never have thought this was important, the country has, what's going on in education has pushed me to this perspective. We should start by changing what we measure as outcomes. Because as long as we're measuring the number of, you know, addition facts a kid can solve in 30 minutes or the number of um, sentences a child can parse, you know, paper and pencil tests, and as long as we are sort of cracking the whip and saying that every school has to keep getting better and better at those scores, um, schools are not going to be a place where kids are happy. And I should add, they're not going to be a place where good teachers are happy. So one of the terrible kind of results of what's happened in schools is that the best people, the people you want to be teaching your kids, warm, smart, well-educated, enthusiastic, um, ambitious those people don't want to teach because who would want to teach if all you're doing all day is making sure your kid has practiced, your student has practiced for a certain test, and if all that's going to happen at the end of the year is that you're going to be measured against those tests, you, the teacher. So one thing is to change what we're looking for as an outcome. And so instead of getting better and better at these very specific um, sort of skills that, that lead to employment, if we looked or more fundamental intellectual capacities or interpersonal capacities, um, we would begin to emphasize better things in the classroom, and that would be better for teachers and kids and and make them happier. But to be more concrete, I mean, for one thing, the day has to be nicer. Honestly, if you walk into a lot of schools you feel like you're in an army training camp. Everybody's walking rigidly and chastised if they don't stay in line and rush from one activity to another. There's this increasing sense, and this has happened in many school districts, that there's no time for pilly-dallying, whatever people think that means. Uh, you know, spending time on um, making a play or reading, a, taking time to read a book or having a nice lunch hour playing outside, or just playing, which is so essential in early development. Um, and so if we made the day more sensible and reasonable, kind of so the kids spent time in a, in a more thoughtful, leisurely way where they got to talk with one another and read books and make things, um, they would certainly be happier and they'd be learning more uh, of greater value. So it, it wouldn't simply make kids happier in a superficial way, it would make the learning experience much more profound. I mean, you know, one of the things that we want kids to do in school is learn how to live a good life, learn how to make decisions about how to spend their time, how to work hard at things, how to pursue a problem till you've really gotten the answer. But the way that schools are set up now, kids rarely have any chance to do any of that because they're, it's so regimented and it's so rushed. And one final question for you, Susan. As you were talking, it made me think that, you know, I've, as I noted earlier, the podcast has been around for a little bit, and I've talked to a lot of folks, but you're the first deve- developmental psychologist I've talked to as it relates to what we should be doing in schools. Do you guys feel like you're left out of this equation ever? That's such a great question. So I think uh, we do often feel that we're left out, but often I honestly think we have ourselves to blame because we don't get involved. We don't jump into the fray. 
And it kind of breaks my heart because I spend half my time doing research and listening to other researchers or reading their work and half my time in schools watching real kids and real grown-ups um, learning and working together. And I see that there's this strange kind of gap between the two. Um, so we've learned a lot, as I said, about sort of natural proclivities. We've learned a lot about how readily children learn in informal settings. So kids, you know, think of how much they learn just from their parents or working alongside an older person in their neighborhood. They can learn very complex things that way. And yet somehow schools haven't capitalized on that natural ability. And, I, you know, you could blame developmental psychologists for not getting their work out there, but you could blame schools for not learning enough about what developmental psychologists know. I, I'm not interested in blaming anybody, but I would love to close the gap. Well, here's here's to a new era of conversation. Then you know, I, I you know, I don't know. I I can't say that the that this podcast is game changing, but you know what? Maybe it will be in this in this case. So I appreciate your reflections there, um, Susan. Th- this is it's a really cool read. I'm going to encourage everybody out there to to pick up a copy and take a look because it is a very different approach. It's it's something I haven't seen before. So I really appreciate you joining the show and thanks to the new press for connecting us together um and uh thanks very much total pleasure talking to you aaron if you didn't catch me say it the first few times the name of that book is the end of the rainbow and the author is susan angle well folks this is it this is the last episode of season one of education on tap I'm going to take a two-month break to rest these very weary vocal cords, but before I do, I have to say thank you. Since we launched, this podcast has gotten over 16,000 listens and downloads, and while that's not serial-level listenership, it is way more than this blushing, budding podcast host could wish for. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, when we're back in the fall, we'll have a whole new set of interviews and stories, so I won't be resting on my laurels, and neither should you. So now is the time to send me your ideas for season two's content. This is a for real offer. So interviews, stories, you name it. I'd love to hear it. To get to me and get your ideas to me, remember that you can tweet at Teach4America using the hashtag EducationOnTap, or you can tweet at me directly at AaronMofoFrench using the hashtag EducationOnTap, or you can email me education on tap at teachforamerica.org that's it for us this season until next time have a great summer y'all